The sermon text today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to obey that uh, command to come to you now. Bring our weariness and our heavy ladenness to take your yoke upon us and to learn from you now because you are gentle and lowly in heart. You promised us that if we come to you and we bind ourselves to you by faith, we will find rest for our souls and we will discover that your yoke is easy and that your load, your burden is light for us because you have carried them, borne their weight. Lord, that's our desire as those of us who are your children already this morning and we pray that by your Spirit's power that you who delight, as the Lord Jesus says here, to reveal these things to little children that you would you would be the revealer today to those not yet your children and lead them to the Lord Jesus that they might hear his voice this morning and rise and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, there are three sections to this passage, uh, which you may have noticed and uh, they fit together logically. They are bound together in a very tight logic. And our job this morning is going to be to see how they uh, fit together. It's very clear that Matthew intends us to understand them not as three distinct units that are separate, but as three, uh, three parts of a tapestry that are wound together. And uh, we can think about them this way. Verses uh, 
20 through 24, Jesus denounces the three cities. Uh, Verses uh, 25 through 27, Jesus prays. And then verses uh, 28 through 30, uh, Jesus uh, moves right out of his prayer and calls and promises rest to all who are weary and heavy laden. And I know for many of you, if not most of you, verses 28 through 30 uh, are familiar to you. And uh, even for people who are not, uh, not raised in the church uh, and haven't read much of the Bible, if they've heard anything from the Bible, it's very likely that among the things they've heard are what Jesus said uh, just so wonderfully promises in verses 28 through 30. What is not well known is the context out of which they arise. And we're going to spend at least a couple of weeks on these verses. This morning what I want to do is take the big picture view with you to see how these units fit together, the the forest, if you will. And then in the coming weeks, I want to zero in and look more particularly at some of the trees. But if you think about where we've been in Matthew's gospel, since the end of chapter 9, right? Since the end of chapter 9, there has been a sustained focus that Matthew has maintained in his gospel on mission, right? Jesus, the transition of mission from Jesus into his disciples, who he intends will be the extension of his compassion, his ambassadors in the world. And this text this morning, that's continued from the end of chapter 9 through chapter 10. It's true of our passage this morning. This passage is about mission and particularly uh, uses Jesus' own experience in ministry to give us a window onto three what I'll just identify is three uh, critical theses, if you will, three principles that apply to all mission, whether it is in the neighborhoods or to the nations. Three truths this morning. We're going to see first that all will not believe. That's verses 20 through 24. Just think about that. With particular faces. Secondly, that none can believe. Now, I know you think I'm going to contradict myself here, and I'm, I just want to keep you in suspense. I said to Maria, I gave her the headings yesterday, and she said, oh, that's typical you. I said, yeah, I just want to keep people in suspense. So first of all, all will not believe. Secondly, none can believe. And thirdly, all must believe. First, let's look at all will not believe, verses 20 through 24. You know, sometimes people will say things like this, and I remember saying this and thinking this as a non-Christian myself, as a very snarky teenager. Uh, You know, I believe if Jesus would show up right right here, and do one of his miracles for me. Do you know anybody who ever said anything like that? Do you ever say it yourself? Well, you know, the problem with that is, I'll just speak for myself. Number one, it's arrogant because it says, hey, I want you, Jesus, to treat me differently than you've treated everyone except your original disciples. And it goes afoul of what Jesus says at the end of John 20 to Thomas. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. But it's also ignorant. 
to say things like that. You know why? Just look at verses 20 through 24. I mean, I just think these verses are stunning. They are just absolutely amazing. Just if you listen again, we you know we said this last week. You know, if you actually pay attention to what the Bible says when you read it, which those things aren't always the same event, right? If you actually pay attention to what the Bible says, it'll blow your mind. Verse twenty. Then he began to denounce. Do you even have a category? for Jesus, a Jesus who denounces anything except denouncers. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What? Wait a second. Wait a second. What do you mean? You're putting together... Most of Jesus' mighty works, and literally it's his, most, his, his uh, plentiful power or his many powers. That's what it means literally, okay? NAS translates it miracles. But you're, look, at what, look at what Matthew's put together in that sentence. Most of Jesus' mighty works and people who don't repent and... He didn't, and they don't repent on such a wide scale. It's not isolated people. The whole entirety of these cities comes under his denunciation. So it's not just isolated uh, failure and resistance to repentance. It's wide scale. Now that is absolutely staggering. Then add to it this. These cities mean nothing to us when we look at them at first. But friends, it's very important. All three of these cities were at the top of the Sea of Galilee. They were critical cities. They were the cities where Jesus' early ministry was concentrated. Uh, Andrew and Peter and Philip were from Bethsaida. Jesus ministered in Chorazin, Chorazin. But even more dramatically, friends, Capernaum, the city that he isolates at the end for special criticism, is the city where he lived after he left Nazareth. Now, just let that sink in. There were people that had Jesus as their next-door neighbor. There were people in his own community who saw Jesus, on a regular basis, who in their presence, Jesus performed multiple mighty works. They interacted with him. They heard his voice. They laid eyes on them, on him. He looked at them through his eyes, and they did not repent. I, I just stand in awe of that. That the cities, the people who had the most access to Jesus, who had the most facts about Jesus, who had the most clear evidence of his power and his identity, who had received, therefore, the greatest and most gifts from Jesus, did not repent. Now, what that means is that unbelief survives in the face of of the clearest evidence of Jesus' identity. Do you see that? Now, let me just say right there that this, this is so important to see this 
because very often our explanations and understandings for why somebody doesn't come to faith is, is too simplistic. We, we think sometimes that, oh, if they only had the facts, if they only had the information, that the reason this person is not a Christian is because they don't have the information, as if, as if, friends, the greatest problem with human beings before God is an intellectual one. And this shows you that it's not. And maybe some of you are witnessing to people right now. Maybe you are one of these people who says, listen, I see all this stuff about the miracles and, you know, how am I supposed to believe this 20 centuries later? Well, I want to say to you, you're in good company in the sense that you're just like uh, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, but you know, it wouldn't make a bit of difference if Jesus showed up here and showed you the true information about himself unless he first transformed you. See, to merely be informed without being transformed is not going to produce repentance because the fundamental problem in every human being before God is not an intellectual one. It is not about intellectual resistance. It is about moral resistance. It is about the defiance of the heart to submit to the one we know is king. And that is going on exactly just like it is in our circles. It's going on exactly uh, in uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. Friends, I find this very encouraging in this sense. Not the fact that people persist in their unbelief and their refusal to repent. That's not encouraging. But the fact that even in Jesus' own ministry, there was a mixed response. It's very easy to grow discouraged when you pray for people year after year after year. It's very easy to grow discouraged and to think that you're doing something wrong. Friends, it's a deeper problem, even the best ministry, right? I mean, right? I mean, you and I say, oh, I didn't say it right. I, you know, we leave the conversation with our non-Christian friend. We're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't say it. I can't believe I let him get away with that. But Jesus never had any moments like that. Always said the right thing. Always said it accurately. Look what happens. You see what this is doing? Friends, this is showing us that in God's interpretation, which is what the Bible is, right? In God's interpretation, the fundamental problem with man is not with our brain. It's the heart. And repentance is the fruit of a heart that has been changed by God's grace. It's staggering to see this. It's encouraging in a certain sense to see this. But more than anything else, it's absolutely terrifying. I find this so terrifying. You remember how in verses 16 through 19, we saw it three weeks ago, Jesus, he says, hey, what am I supposed to compare this generation to? This generation is like a bunch of kids who are playing in the marketplace, and they're saying, hey, we sang a we, we we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. And then we, 
played a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. In other words, you did not jump to our tune, Jesus and John the Baptist. You didn't do what we wanted. As if Jesus' critique of his generation was, listen, they're playing games with the kingdom of God that's right in front of them. They're saying, hey, I'm not going to engage with that or submit to that. The kingdom has to submit to me. I don't have to submit to the kingdom. And you notice Jesus immediately immediately transitions in to verse 20, then. Do you notice how Matthew is saying, then? This follows, his denunciation in verse 20 follows directly and logically out of that critique of his generation. He says, this is no game. Because there is a day of judgment. Do you notice how all the language piles up? Day of judgment. He looks at Chorazin and Bethsaida and he says, woe to you. Woe to you. And he says that because of what he knows is coming. He knows that there is a collision course between the kingdom of God. Friends, this is reality, okay? This is not just in Matthew 11. Matthew 11 is a window onto reality that the rule of God is coming to the earth and has begun to come in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that rule is on a collision course with the pride of man. This is not a harmonious joint venture. This is not a battle between equals. See, Jesus knows that if men persist in their repentance, the unrepentance, the reason he pronounces the woes is because he knows that men are not ready. And he knows that if men do not humble themselves under the reality of God's presence as Jesus manifests that presence, as Jesus asserts the kingly rights of God over the world and the men and the women and the children that he has made, if men do not repent in the face of that assertion of God's rule, all the more so in light of God's mercy in the ministry of Jesus Christ, then there will be only one alternative, and that is peril. Do you believe that? Jesus did. You might say, well, wait a second. Your second point, Mike, says that no one can believe. So how can Jesus hold them accountable? Friends, Jesus knows all these things, and he is holding them accountable. Don't play games. Either you can repent or you can't. If you can, then do it. If you can't, then ask God for grace to do it. But don't play games. See, it's terrifying because when Jesus looks at the future, he looks, he knows where this path of unrepentance will lead if men are left to themselves. He knows that it will lead to eternal peril. He knows that it will lead to eternal judgment. He knows that there is no hope for men from within men. And he uses these three cities from the Old Testament, which were legendary for their wickedness, Tyre and Sidon and then Sodom. And he says, you know what? Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, you guys are worse than they were. And you know, this week as I was reflecting on verse 24, I just thought, I, I, you know, you learn things that you hadn't learned before. And something's just sent a chill down my spine in verse 24, excuse me, that I had never seen before. Jesus says this, but I tell you, speaking to Capernaum, the city where he lived, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You know what that means? I mean, you know the story for 
about Sodom in Genesis 19, where the Lord rains a fire and sulfur down from heaven, destroys Sodom because of its wickedness. Do you know what verse 24 is saying? Verse 24 is saying that there's a judgment for Sodom even beyond that destruction. That the day of, that, that Sodom's, God is not done judging the land of Sodom. You see how, and then all of a sudden it just hit me with such force. This day of judgment that Jesus sees, he sees it as so serious that there is a reckoning for every human life. Every life is moving toward that day of reckoning. And God in his mercy, this is what is so amazing about the gospel. God in his mercy has pulled that day of reckoning in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's taken that future day of reckoning and he has brought it by his grace into the present in the ministry of Jesus Christ who lived the only life that will pass scrutiny. He brought that perfect standard out of the future, the standard of his judgment. He brought it in the person of his son who lived the only life that is capable of withstanding the scrutiny of God's judgment. And then, even more amazingly, he gave his son as a sacrifice in the midst of history, friends, pulling his son out of the future, as it were, into the present, to be in the, in the present, this perfect life that then is offered up as a sacrifice on the cross, that then the future judgment of God is then rained down upon on the cross as a preview of what will happen, what our sins deserve, but not just as a preview, as a window onto his mercy. Because Jesus has been offered as a substitute, as a sacrifice. And now in the age between the cross, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ, we live in an age that is covered over by the news of this mercy that is available to anyone so that the promises of verses 28 through 30 still ring true. And those promises have been purchased by Jesus' death and resurrection. And he offers himself to everyone who hears him as not just a loving Savior, but as a living Savior who has shown by his resurrection that he has withstood the judgment of God and that he is the sufficient sacrifice and that he alone is the shelter for every human being who will come to him. That is an amazing, amazing, wonderful thing that God has done. But you know what? All don't believe it. And the reason they don't is a very deep and high reason. It's not just intellectual. It's much deeper than that. And that leads to our second point, which is that none can believe. Verses 25 through 27. Here's what I want you to see. And it's, and it's often obscured, depending on which uh, edition of the Bible you have in English, you probably have a heading between verse uh, 24, the end of verse 24 and verse 25. How many of you have a heading in your English Bible separating verse, the end of verse 24 from the beginning of verse 25? Now, you understand that the fallible human editors put that heading in. But you notice Matthew didn't put that heading in because you notice how verse 25 begins. At that time. 
You see, in Matthew's mind, what Jesus is about to say or pray or praise in verses 25 through 27 flows directly out of what he has just said over the cities. There's a connection now between what logically and temporally, not just when, you know, meaning that his prayer in verses 25 through 27 flows out of and responds to his denunciation of the cities, but even more so logically, meaning that the prayer that we see him uh, praying here is, it reveals his understanding, Jesus' understanding for the ultimate reason for the unbelief in these cities, and it is a shocker. Look at what Jesus says, verse 25. I thank you, Father. Now, depending on your English translation, it might say, I praise you or I acknowledge you, Father. It's a, it's a Greek word that can go in the direction of thanksgiving or praise or worship. I acknowledge you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you, now notice this, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see, what Jesus' prayer is revealing here is that left to him or herself or that by him or herself no human being will repent of their sin No human being can repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Uh, By or left to him or herself, no one will or can be saved from the judgment of God apart from the grace of God. Think about John 6.44 we studied this summer. Jesus says, again, this is not Paul, this is not John Calvin saying this, this is the incarnate Son of God himself saying, no, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or again, in John chapter 3, in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, you remember what he says twice, he says, unless you're born again, born from above, you can't You can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. You won't come into the kingdom. You won't see the kingdom. You won't move toward Jesus unless God is doing something deep within you by his grace. This is utterly critical to see because the will of man is not a free agent contrary to popular belief. The will of man is not a free agent. The will of man is not neutral in the face of multiple options and able to choose uh, the best from among them. The the will of, of fallen man, apart from the grace of God, is tilted. It's bent. It will always choose against God. It will always, left to itself, it will always choose against Jesus. Now let me give you an example. Practicing law, in many ways, is unhelpful experience to serving as a pastor. I'll just say that, okay? But there are a lot of ways in which it's very helpful. And one of the key ways is in my experience in lawsuits. Now, the way this works, you know, the way a lawsuit works is when you're a lawyer, right, is that you represent the side that your client pays you to represent, okay? No rocket science here, right? So I'm sitting there, lawyer, in my office. Client comes in, checkbook says, here's the dispute. 
I'm a plaintiff, or I'm a defendant, and I want you to represent me. I say, okay. I put on, at the beginning of the case, either, depending on who my client is, either the plaintiff have, hat, in which case I'm over here, or if the client comes in and is the defendant, I put on the defendant hat. That's how the lawsuit begins. And from that point, every fact, every fact that comes up in the course of the case, and everybody, both sides are dealing with the same evidence. There's no secret evidence. All the evidence is on the table between the two parties. And you know what? If you start as a defendant, then every interpretation of the facts is going to be from the defendant's perspective. If you begin as a plaintiff, every interpretation of the evidence is going to be from the plaintiff's perspective. We understand that in that context, that the way you evaluate the evidence depends completely on the hat that you put on at the beginning. When you put that hat on, you put a set of lenses on, and they are the way that you see all the evidence. Unbelief and belief are exactly like that. Friends, if you're a non-Christian, one of the implications of this passage is that you are not a neutral observer. You have a pair of lenses on. You don't realize it maybe, and your lenses are the anti-God lenses. And you're viewing all the facts and all the evidence through those lenses, and they're tinting things. And my, my Christian brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you have, have a different set of lenses, and so they look at the same facts, and they see God everywhere. That's not an intellectual difference. You know what that is? That's a nature difference. And the only reason, the only, listen, the only reason I have lenses on my heart that see God is because God gave them to me. And it has nothing to do with what I earned. I earned exactly the opposite. Because everywhere I looked in my life for the first 19 years of my life, I said, there is no God. And the reason I said that is not because it was intellectually true, but because morally I had to. Because if I acknowledged that there was a God, I would owe him everything. No one is neutral. Everyone is litigating. Everyone is an advocate for the position they begin with. And here's how sin works. Sin comes into a human heart and it breaks the will of man. It ruins the will of man. It destroys the will of man. What a human being was made for was to worship and enjoy God in freedom, in confidence, in boldness, to exult in his grace. What it means to be human is to worship God. And what sin has done to every human being, it doesn't matter where they live, what sin has done is it has come in and the very DNA of sin, friends, is hostility to God. One of the things that's very popular in our culture today is all kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, even with this David Petraeus event, uh, of course, the, the first media interpretations are, I wonder if this has something to do with his testimony next week. But we love conspiracy theories. Friends, you know what the biggest conspiracy theory in the universe is? The biggest conspiracy in the universe is the work of sin to persuade the human heart that God is not good.
And what sin does, it's like a virus. And it comes into the human heart and it reproduces after its own kind. And it, and it spreads anti-godness and hostility throughout the human heart and mind and categories of thought and behavior so that we, we just start living as though there were no God and as though we owed Him nothing. And friends, that is, a, that is a, just a terrible tragedy. And it is a great offense. Paul says the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Right? Not neutral. Hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. So that means, friends, that in order for somebody to come to faith in Christ, there has to be a deeper will than the will of man. There has to be a will that is stronger than the will of men. There has to be a will more gracious and more loving and more kind and more desirous of the good of men than the, than the most zealous man could ever desire for himself. There has to be such a will. There has to be a will in order for anyone to come to Christ. There has to be a will that blows right past the hostility of man toward God and that comes wanting sincerely the joy and liberation of that very man who is hostile to God. There has to be a will that wants to bring hostile sinners to God even though they don't want to be brought to God. And what Jesus is celebrating in verses 25 through 27 is that God has such a will. Isn't that incredible? It just blows me away. I want you to know that. I want you to know that the hope for your life is not in your will. Our world is lying to you. The hope of man is in the will of God, in his kindness, in his goodness. There is a triumphant and gracious will loose in the universe, friends, ruling the universe. It's the will of the Father who Jesus says, look, Father, I praise you because you are the hider of the truth from the wise and the understanding, from the proud And you are the revealer of the truth to those who are meek, to those who are little children, to those who are weary and will acknowledge their heavy ladenness. And and the results of my ministry, Father, are in your hands. And I don't complain. I don't kick against the goads. I don't call your justice into question. I worship you. Friends, Jesus knows so much more than we do. He sees so much more than we do. We read this and we think, that's not fair. Friends, Jesus understood it far more than you or I ever will. And he says, not only is it fair, but he worships the Father for its fairness. And here's why. Because there isn't a single human being who's entitled to salvation. And there isn't a single human being who can stand before God and say, I have not sinned. See, no one's entitled to salvation. And there isn't a single human being who can stand before God and say, I do not need salvation. So all of salvation is all of grace. There's another triumphant will on the loose in the universe and ruling the universe. And it's not just the Father's sovereign will. It's also the Jesus' gracious will. Look at verse 27. 
All things have been handed over to me by my father. I just think about that. (laughs) And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. You see what Jesus is saying? If you want to know Jesus, the father is the gatekeeper. The father has a monopoly in the universe over the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus, in turn, has a monopoly over the knowledge of the, of the... Jesus has a monopoly over the knowledge of the Father. The Father has a monopoly over the knowledge of the Son. And there's no getting around that. Remember we saw last week that all knowledge of God is the gift of God? and that God cannot be known by a man or a woman or a child unless God makes himself known. God is not an object. He is always subject. He, you know, we treat him like he's one of those butterflies. You ever been in a, like a museum or a lab where people have butterflies? They're dead, right? Dead butterflies, and there's a big pin stuck right through the butterfly that goes into the styrofoam, and they just keep those butterflies there. We treat God like he's a butterfly with a pin through them, like we can just access them anytime we want. We'll find them right there in the third row, three in from the corner. He's God. Don't think that way. Do you realize that everything you know, you know because God is showing it to you? Do you know what Jonathan Edwards believed? Jonathan Edwards believed that every instant the universe exists, God is recreating it. Because apart from his active will, every instant there would be no universe. So if we're going to know God, God must make himself known. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us. It is, it is astonishing. Now this has, this has such important implications, friends. First of all, it means that none of us can be prideful. Because if we know God, it is only because, and if we have repented, it's only because the Father and the Son have both agreed. Now think about this, Christian. Why are you a Christian today? It's because, according to Jesus in this passage, the eternal Father, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, he has chosen personally and specifically to reveal his Son to you. And it is also because the eternal Son of God, incarnate, the one under whose feet everything has been placed in subjection, it's because he has chosen to reveal his Father to you. That's why you're a Christian, not because you were in the right place at the right time. Not because you are smart enough or good enough or better than your siblings. And that means there's no room for pride. We're not better than non-Christians. We're not. There's also no room for despair. I despair. I'm tempted to despair over my family members after praying for them for 31 years. I am. And God has reminded me this week that if salvation is all by grace, then there is no such thing as a hard case. Okay, finally, I know we're, I know we're late, and I'm sorry. But I want to get to the last part. All must believe. All must believe, friends. There is no other name given among men on earth by which we must be saved besides the name of Jesus, Acts 4.12.
And Jesus is saying, if you don't come to me, there will be no rest. There will be no rest for you. If you don't yoke yourself to me in relationship, there will be no knowledge of the truth that can save you. There will be no comfort for you. There will be no easing of your burden. Now, friends, I know when we hear this emphasis on the sovereignty of God and salvation that we have gotten to so dramatically in verses 25 through 27, I know that our first response is to say, well, wait a second, that, if, Mike, if you're right about that, that destroys all, that destroys everything related to the free offer of the gospel. If you believed, verses 25 through 27, you would never offer Jesus freely to sinners because you know ahead of time that not everyone that you're going to share the gospel with is going to believe, and you know that only those that God has chosen before the foundation of the world are going to believe. Therefore, you can't sincerely make the free offer of the gospel. There's two responses to that. Number one... Don't confuse what I know with what God knows, please. God knows, but I don't know who's going to be saved. I only know what God has told me to do, which is to share the gospel with everyone. Second response is this. Notice that Jesus, who knows everyone who's going to be saved, doesn't interpret verses 25 through 27 to mean that he is constrained from offering himself to anyone. You see, verses 28 through 30 grow right out of 25 through 27. There is a seamless outgrowth here, friends, where Jesus, after, after he's done praying to his Father and celebrating the sovereignty of God and salvation, what is his application of that sovereignty? It is to look out at the crowds and to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. See, Jesus doesn't view the sovereignty of God and salvation as undermining the free offer of the gospel. Jesus' view is that that sovereignty establishes the free offer of the gospel. Because he knows that through that offer of the gospel, some will be called into salvation. Friends, if you're a Christian, what are you supposed to do with this? Well, let me tell you what you're supposed to do with it, at least in part, is is you're supposed to witness from within those truths. You see, a a Christian is supposed to be able, right, to, to be able to speak from the inside of what it means to have come to Jesus, from the inside of what it means to have taken his yoke Upon you, from the inside of what it means to feel Jesus carrying the burden, carrying the burden of your weariness and your heavy ladenness. Do you know that you will not witness, you will not have joy in sharing the gospel with anyone unless you are living on the inside of these realities? So that you can say, Listen, I tell you that this is my experience. I tell you that I have come to Jesus and I have experienced his tenderness. I have experienced his kindness. I have received his gentleness. I have seen firsthand and tasted firsthand what it means for him to deal tenderly with a great sinner because he has dealt tenderly with me. 
And so, friends, if you're not speaking of this living Savior, I want you to ask yourself whether you are living in him. Are you experiencing these things? Or did you just come to him once in the distant past? Friends, you need to keep coming. And non-Christian friends, what do you need to do? Well, you need to do exactly the same thing that I've just said that Christians should do. Because this Jesus is calling all of us, everyone in this room, to himself. And why should you come to him? Why should you obey his call? Why should you trust him? Friends, it is the same for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Because the one who calls you to come to him first came for you. He came He came, and when he came, what did he do? He took our yoke upon him. He yoked himself to our nature. He yoked himself to our needs before God. What did he do? He learned from God. He placed himself as a man under God's authority and his law. And he did what none of us have done, right? Which is live perfectly for the glory of God under the law of God. He submitted to the yoke of the law and fulfilled it. And he wearied himself for us in a life of suffering and obedience. Why did he do that? So that we might have rest eternally in him. And he bore the heaviest of our burdens, which was our accountability to God's righteousness, and he was even crushed under that burden on the cross, my friends. That's what it meant for him to take our yoke upon him all the way to the end and never try to take it off. Do you know that that's what he's done for you? Have you come to him again today and marveled that he has done this work for you if you're a Christian? And if you're a non-Christian, This same Jesus rose from the dead, from beneath that burden, right, to show that he had carried it to the end. And now, guess what? He comes again to us in this room by his word and his spirit to offer himself to us in the power of his resurrection as a living and loving Lord. Friends, he is here And he calls us to himself. And there is no rest apart from him. And so I bid you to come to him. I bid you to come to him acknowledging that you have broken what you cannot repair. And that your life, whether past, present, or future, if if it's just on its own terms, will not be enough for you to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But his is and always will be. Oh, come to him. May those who have ears hear. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you, and we know that what is wrong with us cannot be fixed by something that we make right about ourselves. The only way that we can be healed is for us to take shelter in your health. So would you grant that we might do that by your power and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.